Hello, everybody. This is Josh Levitsky. I'd like to welcome you to August's edition of AJT Highlights. I'm joined today by Roz Manon. How are you doing, Roz? Doing well, Josh. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, we have an uh, uh, exciting number of articles to go over today. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, I think it's it's um, there's a lot of them, so we're going to have to get through this uh, relatively quickly. But a lot of interesting areas of transplant, and so why don't we just we'll get started. What I'm going to do is just to go over quickly the articles that we're going to be presenting today, and um, then we'll dive right in. So we're going to do a little bit of a different sequence than we have the last few months. We're going to start off with um, the review paper then do a basic science paper, then go right into the clinical papers. So just go over the outline here. Uh, the first paper is by Anita Chong and her group. This is a mini review on outstanding questions in transplantation, B-cells, alloantibodies, and humoral rejection. And um, there's a nice editorial just in that talks about this editorial and, and the introduction to this this mini series, which is a new um, uh, a new thing AJT is doing, and then the uh, we'll go right into a basic science paper from Rebecca Crepo. This is the impact of selective CD28 blockade on virus-specific immunity to a murine Epstein-Barr virus homolog. Really interesting study. Then we'll move right into the clinical papers, and there are four of them. First two are on liver transplant. Neil Mehta and his group at UCSF published a paper on entitled Predictors of Low Risk for Dropout from the Liver Transplant Waiting List for Hepatocellular Carcinoma in Long Wait Time Regions, Implications for Organ Allocation, which is very timely in this uh, field, very important. And then the next is a brief communication by Mary Bowring and her colleagues at Johns Hopkins center-level trends and utilization of HCV-exposed donors for HCV-uninfected kidney and liver recipients, liver transplant recipients in the U.S., I'm going over what's been going on the last few years using hep C-infected donors. And then, then the last one is a, a personal viewpoint, which was interesting, um, about the new lung allocation policy. And uh, this is a personal viewpoint from Puri and colleagues about the impact of the, the new policy changing the allocation from DSA to concentric hmm. circles in lung allocation and what's that done, what that has done to lung transplantation. And then uh, I'll have Roz end up with a really interesting paper entitled uh, History of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and Outcomes After Kidney Transplantation by Siwakati et al. And then we'll finish up. So without further ado, um, Raz, if you could give us a little overview on the uh, mini review. Sure. So uh, just to, to mention, there's an editorial preceding this mini review to introduce us to a new feature uh, in AJT for the next couple of years. It's called Outstanding Questions in Transplantation. And lest you feel left out, um, the community of basic scientists called COBS, now actually called COTS, the community of transplant scientists, in collaboration with other communities of practice, 
wanted to create like an online platform and discussion focused really on areas that were unmet needs in transplantation that required additional research. And the group sent out an email survey, and I think I responded to it, identifying six major topical areas like organ shortage, late graft survival, improvement of immunosuppression, biomarkers, animal models, and vascularized composite allografts, and identified four key kind of specific areas, xenotransplantation and organ repair and perfusion uh, techniques to improve the organ shortage, tolerance as, a, as an alternative to the challenges of long-term allograft survival, developing biomarkers for monitoring uh, graft function and outcome, and finally, B-cell biology and antibody-mediated rejection and how it has remained a hurdle in um, long-term transplant survival. And so Jamil Ozzi and Marissa Allegre mentioned this in the editorial, and then we go right into the first paper of this mini-review by Anita Chong, Dave Rothstein, Kasim Safa, and Leah Rayella on Outstanding Questions, B-cells, Alloantibodies, and Numeral Rejection. And just so the community understands, this is kind of an iterative process. They post the question online. If you want to be part of the effort, you have to be an AST member. But once you're an AST member, you can join the communities of practice that are relevant to you. And these get posted and you kind of email back and forth. This question was posted right before ATC. So it got very heated and very disruptive, but it's exciting to see uh, this mini review that has been developed. I'm not going to go into any great detail about this. This is a very nice translational review that looks at alloantibody and alloantibody injury, both um, the, the clinical aspects as well as the basic science aspects. There are several areas in this review, including donor antibody and its role in active antibody-mediated rejection, the role of memory B cells, how they're detected, how they develop, how they may participate in antibody-mediated rejection. There is discussions of the treatment in this review, both in acute active and chronic active antibody-mediated rejection. There's a discussion of B cells and DSA. Do they play a role in chronic AMR? And then finally, discussion of the accommodation phenomena. The table in the paper, and which is also, by the way, a cover article, identifies some future areas of research. So if you're sort of thinking around, hey, I want to write a grant or I want to think about something new, there are some defined areas here that can certainly help um, lead us to maybe answering some of these questions. And I, I thought it was a very erudite way of sort of looking at things and, and the authors themselves are both basic and clinical scientists. So I recommend that the community go ahead and read this paper. When you see these questions being posted online, your information will be in here. For example, uh, Fatty Locus made a very famous comment in the discussion about Koch's postulate and whether antibody fulfills Koch's postulate leading to disease. And that actually was here and that came up in, in this paper. So um, you, can, you can be quoted in this and your literature may be quoted as well. So a kind of an exciting feature, and I think one that we'll all continue to look forward to. I'm next going to highlight a basic science paper, uh, the impact of selective CD28 blockade on virus-specific immunity to murine EBV homolog, a gamma herpes virus by Rebecca Cropo and colleagues at Emory Transplant Center. Uh, the senior author is Mandy Ford. I think we're all familiar with CTLA-4-IG or Bilatacept blocking CD28 interaction with CD80 and CD86, and that in the clinical trials, there was an association with PTLD and EBV 
uh, associated uh, in individuals that were EBV naive. And so as there's an advent now of developing CD28 specific blockades. So the notion here is that you would block the CD28, CD80, CD86 positive effect of um, that interaction. But the CTLA-4 interaction with CD80, CD86 would not be mitigated by using a CD28 antibody, whereas in CTLA-4, you block that negative signaling pathway, which may have some uh, effects both for uh, protective immunity. And so there are some early clinical trials going on, I think in particular at Emory using anti-CD28, but it remains a question about whether blocking CD28 would affect protective immunity, and in particular, would that affect EBV? So this group has developed a model of, I don't want to say EBV viremia, essentially not PTLD per se, using gamma herpes virus. And I'll just cut to the chase by saying that they compare, um, they infect mice with the virus, and then they compare no uh, immunosuppression versus treatment with CTLA-4IG versus treatment with anti-CD28. In the anti-CD28 group, there clearly was a reduction in the number of virus-specific CD8 T-cells, but these cells remained functionally active. They had cytolytic function, and they were not different in those regards to their functional capacity compared to CTLA-4-IV-treated mice. Moreover, mice treated with anti-CD28 had similar levels of antiviral antibody, and the viral loads were comparable in both loops of treated mice compared to untreated mice. So, and there was also a kind of an interesting effect that CD20, anti-CD28 treatment sort of limited the viral pool of germinal center B cells. So recall that in clinical disease, EBV can activate the B cells and the B cells kind of become self-proliferating uh, and developing into a lymphoma. I'm not gonna have a lot of time to talk about their methods, but I did wanna point out a couple of novel methodologies that I was not familiar with, and this is in particular in using these flow cytometric techniques. They highlight two techniques, one called V-SINE or V-I-S-N-E, and another called CITRUS, C-I-T-R-U-S. They were both available on an online format through a company or a group called cytobank.org. The V-SINE analysis of flow data is shown in figures 1C, 2B, and 2D. Basically, they look, it gives you an opportunity to analyze certain cell populations in a two-dimensional character using very high dimensional flow data. And it has both a, um, a vertical and horizontal axis, but then it adds color and the color really sort of highlights specific cell populations. And it gives you just sort of a different sense of globally about the level of expression of these cells. And when you look at those figures, uh, at least in 1C, you can clearly see the population of viral specific T cells is much, much smaller in both the treatment groups, particularly the anti-CD28 treated group. And similarly, they look at activation markers like CXCR3 and CD27. And again, using this technique in, in figures 2B and 2D, you can kind of see the population spread out more, more specifically. So they, it's kind of like a single cell you know, single cell RNA analysis is like a hot thing now. And, and this is almost like single cell analysis using computer informatics. And then the second technique, Citrus, is shown in figure three. And I thought this was interesting because 
this technique, you know, usually you, when, when you're doing these experiments, you kind of focus on certain expressions of markers based on pre-identified knowledge about how the cells work. So, for example, if you're looking at a spleen and you stain it a certain way with certain antibodies, you might focus on CD3 positive cells looking for T cells, and then you do your analysis. But in this analysis, you basically have this radial tree and hierarchical clustering based on your markers. And when they did this analysis, they can sort of see parent cells and daughter cells, and you can look at different subphenotypes. And in particular, when they looked at different co-stimulatory molecules, they identified sort of novel T-cell populations that have not really been demonstrated in vivo before, even in preclinical studies. So suffice it to say that I think they show some compelling evidence that anti-CD28 treatment did not interfere with viral clearance, that it was not inferior to CTLA-4-IG therapy. And while this is not directly a model of post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, it's probably the best kind of preclinical model we have available to study these things. So I think this is important safety preclinical data that are needed when we're looking at this as a potential co-stimulatory blockade therapy in in people. And with that, Josh, I'll turn it over to you to do some of your papers. Okay, great. Yeah, really interesting basic science paper with clinical applications. We're going to move into uh, the clinical papers. And I think a highlight for me uh, was this paper by Neil Mehta and his colleagues at UCSF, predictors of low risk for dropout from the liver transplant waiting list for hepatocellular carcinoma in long wait time regions, implications for organ allocation. So this paper directly addresses the issue of hepatocellular carcinoma being a very heterogeneous disease. And we know that um, certainly transplanting people who are too high risk for recurrence is not a good thing. But this paper directly addresses patients who are at really low risk for dropping out on a transplant waiting list because of progression. And the question comes up, should these patients even receive transplant or even receive uh, priority over everybody else who has HCC because of their low dropout rate. And of course, we have a supply and demand issue and um, we wanna pick the patients who are more likely to be at risk for tumors to progressing or, or really needing transplantation. And so this group actually focused on their region, a couple other regions, one, five, and nine, that had long wait time regions so they could actually look at the natural history of HCC in their cohort and look at the population that was in those low risk category because they weren't getting transplanted quickly because of these particular regions. They could look to see what happened to this group over time and determine their dropout rate and what happened to them um, when they eventually got transplanted, which was oftentimes several years later. And they had done a previous study from their center looking at this subgroup of patients that had small tumors, single two to three centimeter tumor, low alpha feta protein, less than 20, child's A and low meld patients, and um, found that their dropout was very low, less than 2% at two years, meaning, um, and, and, and most of these patients got local regional therapy so they could be treated and wait quite a long time and not progress. And um, so the, this group, this data that came out 
uh, previously, um, they wanted to validate this in UNOS with a, a larger cohort, particularly in the their region and also um, two other regions. And um, just look at larger data and then also look at the impact of the policy change in 2015 that required a waiting period of six months and uh, in granting meld exceptions and, and having a cap on the meld score at 34 and see if that also showed similar good outcomes in those low-risk patients. And so I won't go through all of the data, but they, um, they had over 2,000 patients in uh, the cohort between these regions. Hmm. And they found that um, they looked at these uh, variables that were associated with a lower risk of dropout, as I mentioned, low meld, child's A, uh, single tumors less than three centimeters, AFP less than 20. And um, this group had a, a very low risk of dropout of 5.5% and 12.4% at one and two years compared to 20% and 29% for all other HCC patients. If local regional therapy was performed, which it often is, um, they had an even lower uh, rate of uh, recurrence, I'm sorry, of, of dropout on the, on the transplant wait list. And so then they looked at sort of survival, intention to treat survival from listing at one in three years, and it was 94% and 78.8%. And then it really makes you wonder that uh, with those really good survivals, what, what is a real benefit of getting a transplant when their survival is so good? Maybe it's it's best to wait on these patients and monitor them closely. And if they have another tumor or, or decompensate, then that's the time to transplant them. And of note, their risk of recurrence post-transplant was very low, which is, which is good, which would be uh, expected. Hmm. This, so this really brings up the concept of survival benefit with transplant. And the authors are actually advocate considering these low risk of weightless dropout as not receiving the same uh, priority as everybody else. And um, in fact, there was an editorial by Nihar Prick and uh, Bachi Agopian at, at uh, Michigan and UCLA that certainly uh, puts us into perspective, but does, does um, emphasize, again, this is UNOS data, so we don't, didn't really have data on local regional therapies. And um, the question also becomes, if you deprioritize these patients, are we going to be prioritizing people who have higher risk of recurrence? And are we going to swing the pendulum that way? But certainly, it's compelling data. Um, and when we're thinking about new allocation systems, um, do we really want to include this subgroup with everybody else in terms of their exception points? Hmm. So not sure if, if this is uh, how much bandwidth this is going to have in, in you know, allocation moving towards the future. But certainly as a hepatologist, I see these patients that just can't be resected because of portal hypertension, but are clinically well, are working, have small tumors, get treated, don't progress over time. And I always wonder if we really should be transplanting these patients. Mm -hmm. So um, interesting study. I think it has uh, policy implications. The next study um, was on um, HCV positive donors and what has been going on the last few years putting these donors into uninfected kidney and liver transplant recipients. And so this is a brief communication by uh, Mary Bowring and colleagues at Johns Hopkins. And it's pretty much a uh, kind of a descriptive study that 
And I think that's why it was a brief communication, but important because um, it really is going over the landscape change. Uh, they looked at April 1, 2015 to December uh, 2nd, 2018, and looked at the numbers of patients receiving a HCV antibody positive non-viremic donor and then antibody positive viremic donor. And I think, um, and this is for both kidney and liver transplant, just to give the spectrum of how things have changed. And I think the, um, just to point you to when the article comes out, figure one just really shows you this significant expansion uh, in the numbers of these transplants uh, for both antibody positive non-viremic and antibody positive and viremic. And of course, this timing has to do with development of uh, oral antiviral therapy that is basically nearly 100% curative and can prevent transmission. But the other interesting aspect is that both uh, kidney and liver transplants, most of these were concentrated in about 11 or 12 centers. And uh, they clustered together often and often related to places where they have a more difficult access to get uh, donors. I think there's a lot of centers that are doing these transplants, but the largest volume ones are concentrated around 10 or 10 to 12 centers. And then finally, they, you know, they kind of looked at the, um, the wait list on, on the, uh, for transplant and noted a, a, um, a reduction in, in, the, in the general time to getting transplants uh, by doing this uh, strategy. So I, this isn't too surprising other than this expansion is really occurring rapidly. And um, even, in, even in the context of just standard of care uh, at centers now, um, these patients are often getting uh, consented for it, but certainly are, this is a protocol but at centers where they're doing this uh, routinely. Um, and then there's some centers that were doing 50 to 100 of these uh, transplants, wow. even in this short time period. Mm. So I think, you know, this is, um, I think, very exciting. I think uh, just sort of, again, a word of caution in my mind that this is definitely in, uh, a way for patients to get transplanted sooner. I think the um, we haven't had really good uh, studies other than that we can cure the virus after transplant on other outcomes such as rejection, other infec infections, other virus uh, reactivation just from transmitting hep C. We all think it's gonna be very positive, but we need, we need some longer term data um, to really say it's, it's equivalent. But certainly getting transplanted sooner is always a good thing. So I, more to come there uh, as this practice expands. Mm. And then finally, uh, just a personal viewpoint, uh, finally for me, and then Roz has one more at the end, a personal viewpoint on the changes to the lung allocation policy. It's actually entitled Unintended Consequences of Changes to Lung Allocation Policy by Varun Puri uh, and colleagues. This was a study that, or actually a personal viewpoint, uh, Wash in St. Louis, which is a large lung transplant center. And just to uh, remind everybody, I'm not not a lung transplant expert, but mm. certainly we're all aware of what happened in lung transplant. Though there was a, a lawsuit in New York at the end of 2017 that there was an emergency action change to change the policy to remove the DSA level of allocation 
or donor lungs and replaced it with a 250 nautical mile circle around the donor hospital. And this was, again, because there's uh, certain regions of the country there was where there were geographic discrepancies in access to lung transplantation. And there were patients who were um, had a higher death rate in certain areas because of lesser access. So this was trying to change things into a circle model around a donor uh, hospital to provide greater um, uh, access um, instead of being in, in regions. So the what this group did here is kind of summarize the OPTN report about what has happened over the first six months of this policy. And of note, there really there hadn't really been seen uh, increases in the mean lung allocation score uh, or very, very small increases, which the point was to try to get to transplanting more urgent patients. So we only saw a small increase in the lung allocation score in the six month time period. Uh, but what the OPTN uh, report had shown was that there were certainly some, some uh, unintended consequences that could be meaningful, such as greater, longer travel distances for lung procurement and some increase in ischemic time because you're, you're going to a larger area. Also, an increase in needing to fly to get organs, so increased costs related to that, and also uh, use of lung perfusion was also increasing substantially um, to maintain these graphs because of uh, longer distances. And then this, uh, this group actually, part of this viewpoint was, was publishing their own data at Barnes Jewish Hospital uh, of what has happened over these last six months. And they saw something very similar too, um, but also evaluated some of the financial consequences locally and um, they found that there was an increased uh, or, or lower use of local donors, so more travel time. There was increased ischemic time in, this, um, in their program, and the organ costs um, basically doubled in this time period yeah. for, for this specific program. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so they're obviously bringing up concerns about the first six months, and it's only six months, but just the concerns about is it really improving outcomes for uh, the patients on the transplant wait list or, or not. And, you know, there are some consequences in terms of cost and travel time. And so uh, this was, ju again, just the first six months. And then the editorial, which was very nicely put into perspective uh, by Rebecca Lehman and Kevin Chan at Michigan, actually timely, I think it's probably related to um, when the paper was accepted and then the editorial came out, there was actually one year data that did suggest there was a change in the lung allocation score with this policy, uh, suggesting again that there's, they are, do seem to be transplanting sicker patients, which was sort of the intent was to uh, get at this group and balance it out. And they do suggest that maybe the cost increase from this center there could be um, because of the the ability the, the the ability to transplant these patients in a different system. There may be reduced costs on the pre-transplant side. So I, I don't think this is the end-all, be-all. I think it was a nice report just showing the initial results. Um, I think it's with any allocation policy, it's going to take some time to really understand um, the, all the implications. And so we'll see in due time, hopefully more reports um, for years to come on this new policy.
And then, uh, Roz, I'm going to come back to you to end with uh, post-transplant or uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I know, post-transplant. Post-transplant stress disorder. Right. Well, as a uh, part-time Veterans Administration physician, um, PTSD is frequently on the problem list and, and certainly a concern for uh, as a possible variable to consider as a contraindication for transplant. And so in this paper by Suakati and colleagues at the University of Tennessee in Memphis and the Memphis VA, uh, their paper, History of PTSD and Outcomes After Transplant, tries to address whether PTSD history should be a consideration for exclusion for transplant. And that's also based on some prior studies where there's been association of of PTSD with other comorbidities for worse outcome, but also for non-adherence. And so they utilize a transition of care and chronic kidney disease data set. This is a unique data set of about, uh, of all the veterans from a certain time period that's specifically October 2007 to March 2015. It consists of about 103,000 vets that have late stage chronic kidney disease um, that may be transitioning to renal replacement therapy. And within this cohort, which they also matched to USRDS, they identified about 4,500 uh, veterans who had received uh, kidney transplantation. And of those, about 282 had a diagnosis of PTSD. Now, I have to say that when you look at, at records and you're evaluating patients with kidney disease, you can see that code coming up quite frequently, but they used uh, a specific definition to ensure that the code was consistently used and that, uh, and or perhaps that there was a stop code for mental health care two years prior to transplant. And within this small population, of, and that consists that, I guess, of all those transplant recipients, that reflects about 6% with this diagnosis by their definition. They had another matched cohort of about 280 individuals that did not have PTSD. And then they go ahead and compare their outcomes. So to cut to the chase, essentially they found no statistically significant differences in allograft failure, patient death with a functioning death, or all-cause mortality. And in addition, when they looked at drug adherence based on a couple of definitions, one is proportion of days covered for specific medications and or what they called medication persistence, which is an algorithm that they they utilize a priority to look at drug refills over certain periods of time and measure levels of gaps in those coverage. They did not find any differences in those with the diagnosis pre-transplant of PTSD. So you say, well, it's a negative study, Roz. Well, you know, what does that mean? And how do you know this is a good study? Well, I think that they clearly had sufficient power to protect differences. And they were able, in this case, to really adjust for the the confounders that you might find in this patient population and particular demographics and comorbidities. So they were able to compare veterans with PTSD transplanted versus veterans without PTSD that were transplanted as well. And so this is a little bit different than what other studies have shown in terms of PTSD. One could argue that at the VA, a strong portion of patient care is focused on mental health issues. And indeed, if you're transplanted within the VA, which is probably a portion of these patients, you have a mandatory mental health evaluation. We don't routinely exclude patients with mental health issues, but their disease has to either be stable or under consistent management or the veteran has to agree to it. So 
it's possible that this paper is looking at a very select group of patients with PTSD that is under care and, and closely monitored. But as such, I think it adds to the to the recommendation that, you know, just having a history of mental illness or example of PTSD should not be leave you to overlook the patient in terms of transplant candidacy, should not be a primary exclusion, but really looked at overall in the patient's overall kind of uh, health issues in general. And with that, I'm, I'm done, Josh. I, I just want to say from a personal perspective, if people are listening and they have to want to give us feedback, I, I don't think we have a formal way of doing it, but I'm always happy to entertain people emailing me with with their comments, particularly the basic scientists who may not agree with my, you know, superficial evaluation of their data. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and same for me, too. This is um, we're, we're, work uh, we're trying not to uh, edit, editorialize too much on these papers and present the data. But certainly um, we want to put it in to the context of the field and, and other literature. Yeah, again, we, we appreciate your your comments is a good idea maybe to have some some type of feedback potential for this uh, podcast or maybe maybe one of the hubs or something through AST could you know be used for something like that anyway great idea so thanks Roz and um, yeah this concludes our August podcast for AJT highlights and um, we really look forward to September with more papers and um, have a good rest of the month. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.